Hey, what's up, everybody? My name's MJ, and you're listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a quick shout out to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web, as usual, at ggportland.com. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about deck building identities. So, again, uh, we're going to define that by roughly how different people look at cards differently, different strategies, and then try to create a unique commander or EDH deck based on how they read a card and how they like to personally build their decks. In order to discuss this topic, I've brought on my good friend Coach j from my White is Good Actually series to talk about some of the ways we differ in our own builds, as well as some of the ways we do build our own decks. So, without further ado, I'd like to reintroduce j to the show. Hey there, I am j the Unsummoned Skull. <clears throat> I have a Twitter at Coach underscore J underscore R-O. I also have a Twitch at uh, Unsummoned Skull. Uh, so twitch.tv backslash Unsummoned Skull. And I also run a Discord community called The Skull Symbol. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm going to give my usual good testimonial to the Skull Symbol Discord channel because it's a great place to meet a lot of people, talk about magic, and ultimately play magic. It's not fun if we aren't playing, right? Right. Although building can be a lot of the fun, too. Sure, sure. I mean, that that's really, especially between the two of us, we love to brew. I don't know if I find as much fun playing as I do brewing, but maybe that's just me. Well, that's one of the things where you put something out into the world and it can it can be anything until you find out what it actually is. <laughs> mhm. So again, on today's episode we're going to be talking about deck building identities, you know, such as if people are building a lot of decks of a certain style or whether you believe that someone has like an identity, a signature way of building their decks, whatever. And uh in the pre-show J-Row and I were talking about a deck that I've actually been working on here recently this last week. And I, I was given the... So, so to give a little bit of background, I was given a deck request by one of the players in my local meta. And he asked me to try to come up with a kind of life-loss, life-gain sort of deck, but one that doesn't necessarily uh, require the use of, let's say, instant win cards, like a combo... Uh, Exquisite Blood, Sanguine Bond, something like that, Aetherflux Reservoir, the Death Star Laser, something like that. So it was a unique challenge for me to try to build in a color pairing, Orzhov's so White-Black, that I have never really gotten into too much. I do have a Mardu deck that I've been playing some, but again, that does go off in a completely different Aristocrat-style direction, so I wanted this to be a lot different. And... The, the whole concept of that deck is actually something that I wanted to start off with today with you, j is when we talked before the show about how I was building the deck and some of the cards I was going to, to be utilizing the deck, uh, we, we were talking about the commander that I chose for this specific deck. And the commander I chose is Selenia Dark Angel. Selenia is a 3-3 legend for 3 white-black. Uh, she has flying. She counts as an angel, which is important for these old bordered cards because it just says Summon Legend on there. And most importantly, it reads, Pay to Life, Return Selenia to its owner's hand. And I originally looked at Selenia as being an awesome commander for my commander deck, because she has that Pay to Life ability on her. 
but I wanted to kind of include that as an ensemble as part of my deck. Obviously, Selenia isn't necessarily going to be my win condition. I just wanted to be able to have a way to be able to pay life, such as to be able to fuel out my, the Font of Agonies, for instance, which allows me to destroy a creature if I have four blood counters on it, and I gain a blood counter every time I pay life. So the fact that Selenia allows me to pay life pretty much whenever I want to when she's on the battlefield offers me an opportunity to not only work with that sort of effect, but also be able to pump out some of the other effects like uh, Villas Broker of Blood, which I also have in here, which allows me to draw cards every time I lose life. So while I'm not exactly looking at her as a win condition necessarily as the commander, the fact she has something that I want to do in that deck, which is lose life, or pay life especially, is definitely something that made me think of her first when I was trying to figure out a commander for the specific deck. But again, as we discussed before the show, you have a Selenia deck too as well, but it doesn't exactly do the same thing as what my deck is looking to do. So do you want to talk about your deck, your Selenia deck, and then kind of what it's looking to do? Absolutely. So I looked at the same card, Selenia Dark Angel, as a 5-mana 3-3 flyer, but there was one particular line that jumped off to me, and that was the pay two life returns Selenia to its owner's hand. Now, those who know me know that I love unsummon effects, and so I was looking to do something cool with the fact that she has a very unique one. So, unlike uh, just trying to return it to protect it, I was looking to, okay, uh, the way that I viewed that ability was that it, it's an activated ability that doesn't require mana or tapping, and so as long as you can retain priority, you can put that on the stack as many times as you want to. So, it actually doesn't even matter whose turn it is. So, what I was looking to do is put her ability on the stack enough times to make my life total arbitrarily low. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you usually lose the game when you have a low life total, right? Yeah. Well, what if you had cards that said you don't lose the game when that happens. So what I was looking to do is, okay, I want to be at a low life total, be okay with being at a low life total, and then swap life totals with other people who aren't preparing for this strategy. And I have quite a few ways to do that in here because I like to have semi-redundancy. So I have cards such as uh, <clears throat> Gideon of the Trials, Platinum Angel, Angel's Grace, Lich's Mastery, Old School Lich, uh, <clears throat> as ways to make sure that I don't lose for having a low life total. And then I have Near-Death Experience, Repay in Kind, Reverse the Sand, Soul Conduit, Profane Transfusion, Magus of the Mirror, and Axis of Mortality to either swap life totals with somebody, win for having a specific life total, or uh, in some cases even just make a giant Profane Transfusion token and beat people over that. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting to see how we built this deck in a very, very different manner, even though we're utilizing the exact same effect, uh, the pay to life to return her to her hand. Because the way I originally looked at her was I have a similar Voltron deck to, to Selenia, you having, having a very similar effect to be able to return a creature at will to hand. And 
I, I really like the ability that she's able to protect herself from board wipes. So having a 3-3 flyer in a lot of games on my meta may not necessarily be the best creature on the board, but the fact that I can return her to my hand anytime I want, should there be a board wipe, uh, some sort of uh, return effect, uh, even Terminus, someone like that where it's being exiled or being put to the bottom of my library, whatever, the fact that I can return her to my hand whenever I want to allows me to get around commander tax. And... I just really enjoy that kind of freedom to not have to worry about my commander ever getting blown up because it's something that happens a lot with my other commanders. And because Selenia isn't necessarily my win condition, I can guarantee that I always have a creature in hand to be able to cast to then be able to play again the next or that turn or the next turn, whatever, to ensure that I'm never completely defenseless. And I have a whole bunch of other creatures in here that have flying, lifelink, etc., etc. So I'm able to eventually, over time, as creatures go to the graveyard, be able to maintain a strong defense because I'm always going to have my commander in, available to me in my hand whenever I need her. And I was able to utilize that and some minor reanimation effects, especially. Like, uh, w one of the cards I'm really excited to utilize in this deck is Command the Dreadhorde, which is a sorcery from War of the Spark. Again, my first, uh, the first set that I ever played with in Magic the Gathering. And Command the Dreadhorde is a sorcery for four black-black. Reads, choose any number of target creature and or planeswalker cards in graveyards. Command the Dreadhorde deals damage to you equal to the total converted mana cost or mana value now of those cards. Put them onto the battlefield under your control. So, again, in my meta, we have a lot of board wipes, a lot of things like that. The fact that I, I can utilize the life that I have gained through all the life gain cards in my hand, plus the fact I have a commander guaranteed to be in my hand in any given time, means that I all of a sudden have a pretty solid defense available to me. Plus, then I can always get a whole bunch of large beaters out of other people's graveyards and then try to beat them over the head with those creatures. So I feel like having my commander in my hand or the ability to have my commander in hand at all times gives me uh, a guaranteed value engine just being there. It, it, I, guess, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I feel like I'm generating some, some mana advantage, some card advantage by always making sure that my commander is available to me. Even though she costs five, I'm always guaranteed to have that five five in my hand and I can always send her back to the command zone if I need to. But the the point is that I, I really enjoy just always being able to know that my commander is there, even in, in some of the heaviest games where most of my other creatures are going to end up in the graveyard. Um, Selenia is mm -hmm. going to be there for me when I need her. As you would want a guardian angel to be. Yeah, it, it really works for the Vorthos perspective, kind of. I mean, <laughs> it... it, it you probably know about a lot more about the, the, the lore than I do, and unfortunately that's something I'd like to get a lot more into. It's kind of hard to find the mm -hmm. older stories without really going back and reading all the books. Maybe I'll do that someday. But yeah, I, I, I would expect an angel of any, um, any metal here to hopefully uh, be, be benevolent and, and whatnot. Of course, of course I, unfortunately, when I, I say that when uh, Archangel Avacyn is one of my favorite commander decks that I've ever built, and you kind of saw how that turned out. It's not that she was, I mean, she was trying to protect her plane. She just uh, didn't understand how to protect a plane from itself. Yeah, it's 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 also why I really enjoy my Sigarda human tribal decks. I feel like it, it kind of weirdly balances out my uh, mm -hmm. my Avacyn deck for the fact that she didn't go batshit crazy. 
But um, anyway, so again, we wanted to also kind of extend the, the concept of Selenia to a couple of other people who we, we've met on Twitter and uh, have dealt with a lot in, in the recent past. And one of those people is our good friend and frequent collaborator, Mono Whiteboarder, a.k.a. Peter. And mm-hmm. j um, again, before the show, we kind of talked about how uh, Peter would probably build a Selenia deck. Obviously, it includes white. It's not completely mono-white, but Peter has his own way of building a deck uh, in, 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 in most mm-hmm. cases. So without really knowing exactly how he would build a Selenia deck, and since he couldn't join us today, how do you think he would build Selenia if we just handed him the card and said, build this deck right now? Well, I think he would, um, just just like we have looked at that pay two life return to the hand, I think he might see it closer to how you see it in terms of being able to repeatedly have access to his commander. I think one of the things he would be looking at that would be a little bit different from how I would look at it or maybe how you would look at it as well is the flying aspect of it. <clears throat> Blue-white skies is a fairly established archetype. Um, and I have a mono-blue Flying Men deck. I could see him making like a Hushwing Griff type deck. So putting some of those stacks effects uh, that happen to be on flying bodies and have access to a commander that flies and protects itself for that incremental damage. So someone like Avon Mind Sensor... Um... I can't remember the other other one. The oh, the Dreamborn Muse. Is this that one it? that flies and and taxes. Uh, Dreamborn Muse, I think, is blue, but there's one that uh, uh, Windborn. It might yeah, be yeah, that, that one. Of. Yeah, that, that's what I meant. Yeah, I was also thinking there's one that flies and taxes on creatures that could that that would fit into a deck like that. So I could see him making a flying hate bears deck based around Selenia. Uh, I don't know how many black creatures there are for a strategy like that, but I think there are plenty as well. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't necessarily have to go full-on hate bear for the black cards in the deck. He could always just throw a whole bunch of utility creatures in there. I mean, again, even something like Villas, Broker of Blood, would allow him to draw a whole bunch of cards um, based on losing life. So even if he were to return Selenia to his hand, if Villas is on the field, you're guaranteed to get at least two cards every time you pay that two life. And it's definitely what I was looking for when I decided to first put Villas in this deck, is I'm if I'm going to be returning Selenia to my hand potentially every turn, I at least have access to that extra card draw um, through Villas if he sticks on the field. It's a little expensive, but I, I feel like he's a good utility creature for how I would build this deck and for how you're mentioning Peter would probably build the deck too. So Yeah, a couple of cards I could see Peter putting in would be uh, Desecration Demon. Mm. The being of each combat an opponent may sa- any opponent can sack a creature if they do tap it and put a plus one plus one counter on it. It's a big beater and it's a repeatable uh sacrifice effect that can keep their boards under control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if if you ever find a, a way to, say, wrap the board and then put it out, that can create almost a soft lock on the game. Yeah, it definitely can. I, I actually kind of passed by my Desecration Demon when I was uh, first putting this deck together, but now that you bring it up, um, that that would actually work really well with Selenia because it is a little lower cost. So what's it, four or five mana, something like that? And four. it does, yeah, just four mana. It has a 
very interesting ability and and the fact that you're always guaranteeing you're going to get some sort of value off it that that's intriguing that's definitely something i'm gonna have to look into and the, the other one would be for just one more you could have arc fiend of depravity another mm-hmm. strong beater in the air that <clears throat> give that's a, a uh, makes a so they choose up to two creatures and sacrifice a rat so it keeps the opponent's boards in check mm-hmm which is especially important when you're making large uh, or mid to large flyers, and it works also well in con- in concert with the desecration demon because they won't have spare bodies. Yeah, if that, you're used to opponents sense. going wide, those are two cards that can hinder their board development while also expanding yours and providing sizable creatures. Yeah, makes sense. It's you're in a way you're taking what's uh, what's nice about this card about Selenia, and you're finding a way to be able to build around the keyword, in which in this case is flying, and then trying to figure out okay, if I have all these white hate bearers that allow me to do things, so I'm and not nece- not necessarily on my opponents to do things. All of a sudden, you're you're getting those extra taxing effects, not in the same manner. But you're utilizing what black is good at, which is for sacrifice, the murder type effects, and you're just forcing your opponents to you, effectively you're grinding your opponents down through extra attrition, just in a different way, I guess. And from my experience uh, playing with and uh, also playing with on a white border and seeing his deck building style, that seems to be close to how he builds. Yeah, that that is interesting. I I guess I haven't played with uh, with him enough to to really get to that point. But yeah, that's something that needs to be rectified. But again, <laughs> that, that's not within the scope of this podcast episode. That that will have to happen at some point. And and uh, again, we we did want to talk to someone else who's kind kind of sort of in the loop uh, of what we do. And and that is Kristen Emily, um, also at the Kristen Emily on Twitter. And effectively, she is well known for her angel deck. She just loves building angel decks. So mm-hmm. I figure, and, and Jero, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but if I was to hand her Selenia Dark Angel and ask, how would you build this? I would probably assume that I would get some sort of Orzhov Angels deck out of this, Angel Tribal. Yeah. So she would look at, so I look at the card and I see the repeatable life loss. You look at the card and you see the the return to hand so that you can protect the card. And card advantage, too. Uh, and yeah. card advantage. Peter would look at the card and see flying. And a decent-sized body. And then Kristen would look at the card and probably see it counts as an angel. Mm-hmm. And they just had a black white a lot of black-white angel synergies in Kaldime. So she would probably have a decent amount of those Kaldime angels in there. Yeah, th- th- there was a Fierja was in there and uh lisa shroud of dusk was from commander legends as well who is also in the 99 of the current build that's sitting here on my desk uh because she does have the that interesting taxing effect uh for for spells and whatnot but again i i did want to have a few few small like sub themes for angels and whatnot in there just because it, it kind of fits so i i i guess there. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that even though it sounds like the four of us would probably build our decks very differently, we would still have some level of overlap between our styles. Is that fair to say? 
Yes, there are probably some cards that would wind up in there anyways. For example, I have Platinum Angel in there because I'm not building an Angel-style deck. I'm not building a deck based on Flyers. I'm not building a deck that cares that much about the incremental life loss, but I am still building an Angel that protects me from the life loss that has a decent body. And so that's a card that could go into any of our builds, really. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that there's quite a few cards in my deck here, again, while I'm looking through it, that we could probably all play in, in, in agreement with each other beyond, yep. obviously, Mana Rocks. There, something like uh, Font of Agonies would work well in both your build and my build, but it wouldn't necessarily work well in either Peter's or Kristen's builds because they're not necessarily looking to pay life. But, I could uh, see them as uh, I could see Font of Agonies was one that's still put in because of the repeatable effect. Sure, it's just used in different ways. I use it to clear the board so I don't get attacked because I'm trying to protect myself before I combo. You might use it to get rid of a. <clears throat> uh, so if you're doing it for a, more of a mid rangey, you might use it to get rid of threats that are bigger than yours. Mm -hmm. Or it uh, just as a deterrent uh, mm -hmm. for someone trying to mess with me. So it'd be an interesting political tool, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Peter would probably use it... I think he would probably use it a little bit more as the political tool in terms of, okay, I can, uh, I can get rid of it. I don't necessarily want to. So why don't you tell me what it will take? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because he would be trying to eke out the value that he could get and political value is still value. Yeah, definitely. If we've learned anything from the new Silver Quill Precon for C21, it's all about politics in these exact same colors. So we're, we're seeing a lot of those politics themes within the, the Orzhov color pairing. And Kristen's very political, but she's also very aggressive. So I could see her using that to get rid of not just random creatures or even threatening creatures, but blockers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that does make sense, because as soon as you start swinging a creature, you can then utilize Font of Agonies, blow up, you know, especially if you're facing off against something like Death Touch across the board, blow it up, and then swing in with just a bunch of huge angels in the air. I mean, that, yeah, that, so, so at that point, it's almost like a combat trick. Yeah, I could see her using it a little bit more aggressively to pick off, say, let's say somebody's playing Dragons. Uh, even if uh, she could theoretically attack into it, just kicking out the dragon so that she can swing at the player that she wants to swing at. Or even, uh, I'll, this is how I sometimes use uh, effects like that, is to clear threatening boards or boards that are able to block so that I can continue splaying the attacks. Mm -hmm. I don't like to go all in on a player, even when I'm playing an aggressive deck. I like to try to keep the life totals even. So I could see using that effect to enable me to attack players that are at higher life totals. Okay, yeah. Or, I, yeah, and, and even going on with the political point of all this, you could even, and, and you like doing this in some of your other decks, you could even blow up a creature attacking someone else, too, uh, to make mm -hmm. that an interesting political tool to try to get some sort of uh, favor later on in the game, I suppose. Yep. Uh, yeah, and sometimes you do that just because you're trying to help somebody out. Like, uh, I've since taken off the kitty gloves a little bit, but 
I know it's kind of a sad way to phrase it, but <laughs> I would usually play a group hog deck the first time I'm playing with somebody because I want to protect them and and see what they do before I pick it apart. Mm-hmm. So I have a Ravos and Ishai deck that is group hog, but it is able to win with Ishai. And so that deck, my goal is to use my unsummon effects, which I'm known for, to bounce my opponent's creatures to either protect them in the face of rats, to, uh, <clears throat> to uh, basically protect them from the other players, to remove blockers sometimes if I need to finish the game with Ishai, or to, uh, I mean, I can always bounce Ishai myself. But in that deck, uh, one of the things I've done in there is... I protected a new player uh, who was playing a pre-constructed deck so that it was designed around the commander, mm-hmm. and somebody tried to do things... Uh, it kept getting targeted. One of the uh, one of them was Oubliette. So I used the, errat- the Erratic Portal to bounce this creature in response to Oubliette, because otherwise, if his, pre-con- if his pre-con deck didn't have art, uh, enchantment removal, he was not getting his commander back. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you use your removal effects because it'll put the thing in a zone where it's more useful for the player. It's especially helpful when there's a player who doesn't really know how to do that, or if they're playing a deck where you know that they really can't do that. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see how we could take the same card, again, this being Font of Agonies, and in a way, play it almost four different ways. I mean, that right there is really the beauty of the format, for me especially, and I, I know you and uh, Peter feel very much the same about this, in, in, especially in our talks about, the, about Mono White, is the fact that the three of us look at Mono White very differently in that, in that way too. And the fact that we can build the decks we want to be able to build is really what keeps us coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that I I see Commander very much as a formula, and it's a constantly changing formula. It's one where you can't just solve it, and mm-hmm. each Commander that you look at is a new problem that you're trying to solve. But even the solutions that you come up with will be completely different, and they won't necessarily. There's there's no better or worse. We can make those four different Selenia decks, put them against each other, play four games, and each of us would win one. Yeah, actually, now that you now that you say that, we should see if we could try to set something like that up. Just pick four <laughs> four. Com- I mean, this is happening, J. Rowe. This is happening. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I brainstormed the deck for them. I'm not sure they would necessarily see that as. Um, a creative outlet if you're just building a deck someone said you were going to build in a way that somebody said you were going to build it. But I could certainly see picking a commander, maybe not the same one, and putting out a deck building challenge like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have seen a few creators. Again, I, I'm really, the names are escaping me at the moment. It'll come to me later, but I know there's a few creators out there, uh, like gameplay gameplay specialties, and I think they have tried to build the same deck, uh, all four of them in, in the pod, but obviously they try to build it in, them in different ways or utilizing different cards or something. So it, it's just interesting 
the fact that you can have four people, I mean, especially compared to uh, some other strategies like in the 60-card constructive formats, where you may not necessarily have that level of freedom to be able to do, do this, where if I was to give you Selenia and, let's say, a Legacy, for instance, I mean, I'm not saying she'd be ultimately playable in that format given the meta, but if I was to hand you Selenia and said, hey, I want you to build a deck around this, there's probably one, maybe two ways to build that deck, and neither of them might be all that competitive. But again, since we're playing in EDH, there's, it seems like there's no limit to which way we can go with this deck. We've already identified potentially four different ways that you could build this. And again, we could be missing out on something too. Someone mm-hmm. could probably come in with a completely different concept than what anything we've ever thought of for this exact commander and make a really good deck out of it that we would never see coming. So the fact that we can have at least four different ways, if not more, to build this exact commander in this format definitely demonstrates um it, it just the the variety and the variance in this in this format it's what makes us keep coming back to it that's it's really the whole point why i'm doing this podcast is just i i love the variance i love the ability for us to be able to talk make these discussions have these discussions and just talk about um how we differ and yet how we're all kind of similar and kind of the same in our own ways when we build our decks Millennia was a particularly cool example because we could look at different parts of the card and just pick it apart like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and and it's interesting because there also isn't a ton of text on, on this card, is that it doesn't lend mm-hmm. itself to a particular strategy. Again, you and I would look at the two life here and we go obviously go off in a different way on it. But mm-hmm. again, there isn't a mountain of text on Selenia. It's it's an older card. It's actually quite simple in all in all ways. So, in 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 a way, there there's almost more room to build it than a lot of modern commanders, where they kind of shunt you into one particular strategy. Um, I would say even modern ones have a lot of different ways they can go. Like looking at Ishai, people would think, okay, that's supposed to be. Uh, a Voltron Commander. And I do kind of use it for that too, but I also use it for uh, <clears throat> uh, so I use it for Group Hug because I want you to cast spells to make my guy bigger. Mm-hmm. So Asper Group Hug really even thinks of that, right? Yeah. I I talked a week or two ago with Jason Yalta over at EDH Rec where during that podcast where we were trying to build conceptual commander decks i utilized someone's uh, comment to me a while back that grixis doesn't have any combat based commanders and i tried to build out a hypothetical nickel bolus voltron deck in grixis colors to be able to accomplish the same thing so yeah, yeah it's it, it, it's definitely there's a lot of challenges in trying to be able to play edh trying to come up with something new but i think what we're both proving here is that uh, we all look at these cards in a different way, and and that's the beauty of the format, is there is no one way to build your deck. You can build it however you want to. You have the freedom to be able to do so. Yeah, one of the ones that really piqued my interest that has made a deck that's one of my current favorites, even though I'm still working on it, uh, in terms of making some adjustments to it, Mm -hmm. is Umori the Collector. Okay. So Umori the Collector... People were looking at how to make it a companion. Uh, okay, we're going to make a black-green... Uh, well, your commander has to fit it, too. And it has to fit whatever you, you uh, whatever uh, card type you select. And so... 
if you you can only pick enchantment if you're going to use Farika or creature if you're going to use any of the green black ones and you have to have your entire deck be that mm-hmm. and so a lot of people just wrote it off as one note because those are the only things you could do with it so I decided I wanted to try to build Golgar uh, to build a Golgari deck because I don't really have one or I didn't really have one uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to go prismatic with my unsummon effects so I'm trying to complete the prismatic. I can't really figure out something cool to do with Golgari. Then I remembered, oh, he's a legendary creature. What if I just make him the commander? That way I don't have to be a slave to the theme, but I can still use it. And I can name any type I want. Mm -hmm. So then I got to thinking, okay, the reason why I wanted to build a Spellslinger Golgari deck is because, well, I love Spellslinger decks. That's kind of my deck building style because I'm a com I'm a natural combo player. Yep. And what if I just use him for his cost reduction ability and chose sorcery because there are a lot of big splashy black and, uh, black and green spells that can uh, that uh, especially black that <clears throat> can be reduced that way. Uh, a lot of the green ramp effects like ramping growth can be reduced that way. And so basically, I can cycle through my deck, mana severance all my lands, and then start going through some big shenanigans. Then I got the big brain idea of Seasons Past. That's a big, spicy green spell. Then I started thinking of, okay, how can I make that even more nutty? Tutors. Now... People are in a different place on tutors and EDH. What I like in that deck, though, is I can use the tutor to find the season's pass, to recast the season, or to cast the season's pass, to put the tutor back, and then put season's pass on the bottom. The tutor then goes and finds season's pass again and again and again and again, and now I have an outlet for all that extra mana, plus all of this is sorcery, and getting discounted. So I made a storm deck in Golgari. Yeah, that's not exactly something I would expect from a Golgari deck, having started off as a Golgari mage when, when I first started playing mm -hmm. Magic. Yeah, that spell slinging is not something I ever really thought possible. So this is this is new territory. It's it sounds rather <laughs> exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, that also, it does kind of come from some of my knowledge of uh, of decks that I've seen. And Seasons Past was a deck that was played with, uh, I don't think it was around with Razakus, right? But it was around with uh, Magic Origins Tutor that makes three black. Uh, man, that's going to bug me for a little bit. But <clears throat> uh, there is a Tutor that was around at the same time. And so that was actually in Standard. At one point in time. Mm -hmm. But in Commander, you can do even more of that. Yeah. And, and and the fact that you're not afraid to try something new is is really, I think, what we're trying to get at here. Because, again, you do have your own identity that you're trying to, to get to. And 
trying to color shift that into a strategy or a color combination that doesn't normally do that sort of thing is is the kind of thing that I always talk about where you're going to remember it after mm-hmm. you've played that game. So, uh, yeah, the card you were talking about is Dark Petition. Yep, I'm looking at it. Yep. Unfortunately, uh, I couldn't remember in time. Well, I, yeah. I I knew what card you were you were talking about. I didn't remember the name either, so we both had to look it up. Yep. But yeah, yeah Dark Petition from Magic Origins is an interesting one. Um, that was actually a standard deck, Dark Petition Seasons Past. Yeah, that that sounds like a pretty gross combo, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of the unsummon, obviously you you've talked about how you've tried to make a spellslinger deck in a lot of different colors, if not all the color combinations. Could you actually go more into some of the things you've learned as you've tried to make unsummon effects and spellslinging effects in all different color combinations, especially the ones where it's not quite um not quite mainstream uh, just what have you learned about trying to do that and what do you think is the most rewarding part about trying to to make these strategies work in non-traditional colors the origin of the unsummoned name comes from when i was doing the uh color challenges which i talked about before uh that i would have my students do before i would let them draft and it specifically comes from them having difficulty winning with blue and them calling unsummon a weak card that does nothing because if they bounce a creature it just gets recast or uh, and that's all they really saw that it could do and so i set out to show them how many different things you could do with an unsummon and so even within that deck you could use it to bounce a creature to counter it. You could use it to bounce a blocker. You could use it to protect your creature. You could use it to, uh, so you could use it to bounce an attacker. You could use it to bounce a mnemonic wall and then return it and then bounce the mnemonic wall again and over and over and over to be able to block a creature that would ordinarily be able to kill it as long as the creature didn't have trample. You could use it to protect your creature from removal. You could also use it to protect your creature from <clears throat> uh, to protect your creature from lethal damage. You could use it to protect your creature from uh, an opponent using a pump spell on their creature, or you could just bounce their creature. Uh, and the timing of when you use it can influence whether it's an offensive card, a defensive card, a tempo card, a mid-range card, even a combo card, with like it was with the mnemonic wall. And that was within a 20-card deck. So I set out to try to do that and see how many different things I could do with Unsummon in Commander. And I'm trying to go prismatic with it. So all of my decks are designed to return things to hand in some way. Uh, Ravos and Ishai, I mentioned, are designed to... return opponents' things so that they recast them or designed to return them so that I can uh, uh, or designed to protect uh, Ishai for the most part. Uh, After that, I have the Nyambi deck, which is uh, Nyambi herself bounces things uh, in order to gain some life and then then, uh, so that I can discard legends to draw cards. 
so I bounce the legend, discard it. Uh, <clears throat> I use that to fuel uh, in order to find bigger legends down the road. I have Vadrock, where I use... Uh, Vadrock, it's actually a burn deck now, but I will do things like mutate Vadrock onto Goblin Electromancer, and then uh, unsummon the Vadrock Electromancer pile, returning them to hand and, sp and spreading them apart. And then I can put them back together in different orders or different stacks. I also use that to be able to remutate Vadrock. <clears throat> I have Rurikthar the Unbowed. That's another spell slinger deck where my goal is to have Rurikthar either have lifelink or bounce Rurikthar with any of a few different red and green creatures that say bounce a creature. Uh, or say um, they say return a creature to the owner's hand. Okay. So I use those creatures in Rurikthar to get around his negative ability so that I can cast spells when I want to and not take six. Mm -hmm. uh, I have Mono Green Humans, uh, but that's a different deck. Uh, I have Jasmine Boreal, who... Uh, this is actually a, the, it's a silly deck that has uh, vanilla creatures. It's vanilla keyword soup, because I'm a mad scientist and I wanted to do it. So all the creatures are vanilla, but they gain abilities when they come out on the battlefield. One of the things that they can do is cream of the is trigger cream of the crop. So mm -hmm. I have erratic portal to balance a creature and then put it back out cream of the crop. Um, <clears throat> I have the um, simic burn with Varel, where I'm looking to mass bounce an opponent's board, like an evacuation effect, and then black vise or. Uh, any number of similar effects to that, such as Storm Seeker, and deal damage to them equal to the number of cards in hand, but of course they have a lot of cards there because I put them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a lot of different ways to use the Unsummon effects. Locust God has wheels, that's what Locust God usually does. Well, I have my Unsummon package in there to bounce... Avison, wheel it away. I don't care that it's indestructible. I'm never seeing it again. <laughs> um, I have Kess Adventures, where I send a creature on an adventure, bring it back, and then bounce it to my hand, and then send it on an adventure again. Oh, that's right, because it does, as long as it has a sorcery or instant attached to its adventure effect, you can just bounce it right back. Yeah. Uh, I'm a terrible boss in that deck. I just keep sending him on adventures and sending him and sending him and sending him and sending him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I bet your HR department's going to have a lot of complaints there. Yep. I have uh, Kolfenor uh, Tree Cycling, where I just cycle, cycle, cycle. Sometimes if I run out of things to cycle, I'll just Erratic Portal, bounce a cycling creature, cycle it again. And then do that until I get to a living death effect. Mm -hmm. And then everything that I cycle comes back. Uh, and then a more traditional one would be Drawnu, which is weird to say Drawnu is traditional because it's a silly commander. But the Drawnu deck is designed to use unsummon effects more in a way to just protect a spell slinger. Uh, 
<clears throat> so I'll do things like I've actually bounced my own Drowlnu in response to somebody attacking with a creature that had Lure on it. Mm-hmm. Because Drowlnu, if it's dealt damage, I have to sack that many permanents. So I've actually just, uh, okay, you're saying I must block? Nope, he's gone. But yeah, draw news more. The unsummoned effects in there are more to just keep the board clear while I'm waiting to do giant Demir stuff. <clears throat> but yeah, that's a variety of them. And then we've already talked about Suicide Selenia. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> what about your Traxos deck? How does that work in Colorless? Um, so that's part of my monocolored series. And Traxos, you will use things like Erratic Portal to bounce zero drops, and then use uh, Clock of Omens and such to untap the Erratic Portal, mm-hmm. and just keep replaying zero drop, zero drop, zero drop, untapping Traxos, tapping Traxos for mana with a couple of different effects that can do that. Uh, <clears throat> so I think one of them is... Goto Tenzo's Maul, but it, there, there's a there's a, there are a couple of artifacts that can tap a creature to add mana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a Springleaf Drum, for instance. Yeah, that type of an effect that, that's in there. Yeah, that, that's, that's not handy right now, but yeah, that, that that is interesting. I I honestly I I know we've talked about that deck of yours before, but I never quite understood exactly how you were going to get to work in Colorless. So that that that's interesting. I definitely learned something there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, I'm a mad scientist. <laughs> I do crazy stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. The fact you're coming up with unique decks and trying to prove a point actually, I I, I think it's what more people in EDH should do is try to go out of their standard deck building constraints and just try something completely strange and unique. That's something that they can do, but even if they're not quite willing to go outside of their comfort level, you can always find a way to color shift what you are comfortable doing. Like, I'm not comfortable with creature-based sacrifice decks. That's not to say I don't have a couple of them. I don't like playing with or against them. So, like, Aristocrats is probably my least favorite strategy in the history of Magic. Especially uh, ones that aren't looking to end the game anytime soon. Versus like, me, where to... I have a couple... I do have a couple Aristocrats decks sitting around, and they do oh. fairly well in my meta. So, yeah, but, but again, they're they're built in mm-hmm. the traditional way, using traditional colors, so aka using black, and um, just trying to do the typical sacrifice, reanimate, sacrifice again, try to ping, 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 blood artist triggers, and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. But you say you have a mono blue aristocrats deck, <laughs> and that's not something yeah. you normally hear out of blue. So tell us more about that. Okay. Uh, so I color shifted the aristocrat strategy into blue using Baron uh, Talarian Master, mm-hmm. uh, which is... I mean, he is on the reserve list, so he's a relatively expensive commander, but he's cool. Especially now. Uh, the price has been going way up lately, as I've heard, so, mm-hmm. yeah. So his uh, ability is for two colorless, sack a permanent. It doesn't say what kind of permanent. Uh, unsummon something. 
So what I can do is sack permanents that want to be sacrificed and use that to start going through my deck relative with relatively high velocity. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I have some other effects that choose to sacrifice creatures to draw cards like uh, Vivisect, uh, Viviception, I think it is. Yeah, Viviception. Uh, sack a creature, draw three cards just to just churn through it. Uh, some things that benefit off of drawing cards because I'm drawing a ton of cards. Mm-hmm. And also just some generic bodies because you've got to have them. And then it has some ways to win the game, but it's more just going to nickel and dime the opponents by using aristocrat-style effects to keep the board clear, using incidental bodies to beat in when it can, when I say incidental bodies, I design decks to do certain jobs. I design decks with certain jobs in mind. So incidental bodies would be things like Mold Drifter as a card draw card. Okay. So rather than play Divination, I might play Mold Drifter in a deck like that because it has a death trigger, mm -hmm. it draws cards, and if I need to, I can have it be a body as well. Okay. <clears throat> It's an incidental body because it's one that could have just been a divination. It's a to me, it's a divination that can also that that comes with the with a plus of being a body. I have no problem just having it be a divination. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't want divination in that deck because it doesn't come with the incidental body. And since you're trying to sacrifice permanence in the end, having a divination in your graveyard is not going to give you any utility when you have Baron out there versus having Moldrifter, which can mm. at least be sacrificed. Yeah. You, you can always pay five to get it out, <clears throat> draw two cards, maybe attack with it a couple of times before you sacrifice it. Mm -hmm. In which case, you got a lot more value than just the five mana you spent, or seven total to sack it later. Yeah. So that deck is a very intricate deck because it has a lot of activated and triggered abilities that need to be timed properly in order to maximize the effectiveness and the uh, <clears throat> uh, so the effectiveness of the cards and abilities as well as the the board positioning in order to allow you to eventually get into a winning position. Because the creatures aren't huge. Like, Moldrifter is a 2-2. But they are able to poke through damage when you need to poke through damage. There are a couple cards in there that can make uh, creatures unblockable so that you can, again, poke through damage that you need to poke through. But otherwise, the deck isn't going to get there quickly. Additionally, I always play at least five mass removal effects in a deck. But in a deck like that, it doesn't want to use too many of them because it's trying to maintain a board. It would use uh, effects like Wipe Away. Uh, so Wipe Out. Uh, so Wipe Out is a four-mana sorcery uh, that returns all uh, non-land permanents of a given color. So 
if you're a mono blue deck, that means that there's a really low likelihood that you're actually going to hit your own stuff with it. Because most likely people at the table are playing other colors, unless it's set a mono blue throwdown, which is usually when I play the deck. But still, you use that to clear their board so that you can recover faster and get in damage while they are recovering. Uh, <clears throat> there's Inundate as well, which costs six, which is a little bit more, but it also gets rid of all non-blue creatures, which is pretty similar with, to what you were already doing with uh, with Wipeout. So the the mass removal effects in that deck are designed to allow you to continue attacking. As opposed to, say, an evacuation, which would bounce your board as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the deck as a whole was designed to be an homage to Peter or Mono White Border because I very much respect him, game respects game. And I wanted to design a deck that would be sort of in his style, but with my signature mechanic. Makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, that it, it's interesting that you bring that up because it. The more I get into content creation, the more I find that this is not just about us talking about, you know, a, a certain topic. I mean, there is a lot of that to to creating content. We both know that, but I think what I've really gotten out of content and out of talking with a lot of different people who come at this from a different angle, talking with both Peter and you a lot about deck building, just about a lot of everything in general, is that we have these abilities to be able to change our strategies and update our interests based on our interactions with other people. I, I remember when I first started the game, I was very impressionable. I would try to, I would see someone play a strategy and I would try, try to think, okay, how can I defeat that strategy? try to get a couple singles here, try to do something else, and then someone would beat my face in with a different strategy. Well, over time, you start realizing that you can't be prepared for everything, so you just have to really double down on your strategy and just figure out where you want to go with it. And that really is where you come up with your own distinctive style, how you like to play the game, certain decks you like to run, color combinations, etc., etc. For you, you had a very interesting and I would say quite unique way of getting into the game compared compared to mine which is just living learning and then just figuring out what i liked updating it as necessary trying new decks some of the some of the decks i built recently here after the covid pandemic started um i have played once or twice and i've torn them apart they just didn't excite me but other decks that i've built have honestly become some of my favorite decks i mean for instance my mono black coat the fed soul hoarder deck for instance it actually came out of a uh, comment that I heard saying that Coat the Fed was unplayable and as a commander because of Smothering Tithe. And I said, okay, sure, but can th does that mean that he is unplayable? Well, well no. So I put together a deck that uh, it was kind of in a way to spite that comment that I heard. It, was just it, it felt like a challenge to me. And... And, and so if we want to go into a little bit of how I build decks specifically, 
is I like building challenge decks. So again, like I mentioned just a moment ago with Kothafed, or building a hypothetical Grixis, Nicol Bolas, Voltron deck. Um, in, in our interview with Jason E. Alt a few weeks ago on Control Room, um, I, I typically like trying to take decks or strategies that may not necessarily fit in a certain pairing, kind of like you do, but mostly just trying to do a prove-it strategy. So I'll try to see what a commander does, typically what a lot of people do, with that commander, you know, based on whatever is printed on the card, and maybe do 50% of that, but then try to do 50% of something else. So again, I'm going to go back to the Selenia deck here. The, the, the whole concept behind the deck was I didn't want to try to necessarily have to win with the usual life gain, life loss cards. Sure, I could easily jam Aetherflux Reservoir into this deck and probably win really easily. Just because I'm gaining a lot of life, I'm doing a lot of the things I need to, losing 50 life could help me potentially uh, not just take out one player, but then th th there's lots of ways to be able to gain a ton of life and be able to just Death Star everyone to death immediately on at instant speed. Or, again, I could use near-death experience. Well, that means I have to have a specific concept in mind to be able to try to get down to that if possible or, or even felidar sovereign it's like there, there's there's a lot of ways you can try to win in these colors and i'm trying to turn it on its head by saying well i'm trying to gain life i'm trying to lose life but i'm still going to kind of stick to my guns where i like combat a lot if you ever play against me you'll see that i love turning creatures sideways and that's really kind of where the 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 reanimation sub theme i think comes in for this is Again, in my meta, we run a lot of creatures. We have a lot of board wipes. Well, all of a sudden, if I can utilize some of my life total to be able to get a whole bunch of creatures out of the graveyard or be able to do some crazy thing uh, utilizing my life total, well, all of a sudden, that puts me ahead of my opponents and then allows me to put in some souped-up strikes later on in the game with big beater creatures. So... The fact that I'm trying to take something that goes a little bit out of the ordinary in a life lane, life gain, life loss deck like this, I, de I think definitely sets me apart from a lot of other decks that would just immediately go to the Aetherflux Reservoir, would go to the Infinite Combos, would go something like Sanguinate, uh, Gary, for instance. I'm not running any of those. I'm trying to build a life gain, life loss deck that also still contains combat-ready creatures, Things that are indestructible, things that are, have flying, things that have lifelink. I'm running Divinity of Pride. I'm running Vampire Nighthawk. Just, you know, things that have flying, things that have lifelink. I'm running, I'm going to be running Safara's Sky's Blade to get all my flying creatures indestructible. It's still a very combat-centric deck in a lot of ways. It just has a lot of life gain synergies, too. So it, it's one of those things where, while it's a work in progress, I just want to make sure that I have some aspects of my combat mind in the deck here because it's not necessarily something people expect and that's usually what how i like to tip the scales second thing i like to do is always try to run a whole bunch of cards that people have either never heard of or that have a lot of risk factor again these are not exactly like me trying to run omniscience or anything it's it's just typically cards that may not necessarily have the most guaranteed uh effect in all cases but which may have some increase ceilings lower floors so i'm going to be utilizing the example of read the bones versus skeletal scrying jayro i know we talked about this before the show is that 
Read the Bones is a very good card. I'm not going to say anything against it. Scry 2, draw 2, lose 2 is a very good effect in black for 3 mana. However, Skeletal Scrying, if I'm not afraid to lose some cards in my graveyard, which, you know, there's a lot of instances of sorcery. And, and when in my meta we have a lot of long games that go over an hour, a lot of cards are going to end up in the graveyard. Well, all of a sudden, if I'm stuck and there's a board stall somehow, Skeletal Scrying I can use out on end of turn, throw a whole bunch of cards I can no longer utilize at all, those instant sorceries, my board wipes, uh, just just anything that I can't really bring back out of the graveyard, uh, artifacts, enchantments, things like that, I can cash those in for extra card draw using Skeletal Scrying at instant speed. And while sometimes there will be moments where that card won't do anything, I may not have any cards in my graveyard to be able to bring back. This is the problem with my first attempt at a Moldroth of the Gravetide deck, was that I had zero cards in my graveyard to bring back. Um, I figure that by uh, turn 10 or so, I'm probably going to be getting more than two cards out of it for, let's say, four or five mana. Well, if I can do that at instant speed on someone's end step and I have a whole bunch of untapped mana... All of a sudden, I'm gaining that card advantage by threatening, potentially having a Settle the Wreckage, Path to Exile, something like that, available to me during other players' turns, and then being able to turn that around and be able to Skull Scrying, draw up seven, let's say seven, eight cards by that point, and maybe be able to find the cards I need to be able to turn the tide. So it's just one of those things that I've learned over time is that I just really like cards that are just a little bit different. They're against the grain. And that I always try to throw five to like five to seven, maybe even up to ten cards in any particular deck that don't always necessarily do the thing you want them to in all situations. But I just enjoy the fact that they have the, that higher ceiling, and the risk factor makes them exciting. So that's really how I take my deck strategies in: is I just try to find some of the weirder cards some of the weirder sub-themes, strategies, and just try to find ways to make it work. Is it going to work all the time? No. But again, we're playing EDH for fun. We're not always going to win the game. So why not try to do something memorable, something kind of silly, and just see what happens? Yeah, I do something very similar, except I don't outwardly look to put unusual cards in decks. Like... I do see. I see it as a sign of pride if somebody needs to look up a card that I'm doing, or if they ask, "What does that do?" I do uh, take a lot of pride in that because that means that I did something that, that I, I did something that was creative or found a card that they haven't heard. And as we were talking, we've sort of been talking about. I have a high magic IQ, and that's because of the fact that I've been watching the game and studying the game for a long time. Uh, and I remember things that I saw, like the Seasons Pass loop that I saw at a, a Magic Origin standard, mm -hmm. uh, and then put that into a Commander deck. So I do also surprise people with older cards, but I don't set out to do that. I set out to have the deck do certain jobs, and that happened to be part of my uh, that happened to be part of a wing comp that I wanted to put in. Uh, <clears throat> but um, so an example would be in, in my Selenia deck, I put in uh, some cards that have incidental life loss on them because I don't care about the life loss. So, for example, I have Final Payment, which mm -hmm. uh, destroys a creature for two mana at instant speed and has no restriction on what it can destroy. 
It costs five life for a second creature enchantment. I have no problem with paying five life. In fact, that does part of the job for me. Uh, I have uh, it's another one that's in there. It's an, an interesting one is slaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, four that will that will two. be in the in this deck when it does eventually mm-hmm. come in the yep. middle. Four mana instant. Uh, t- it's a terror that you can pay four life with buyback. Withering boon is another fun one. Mm-hmm. Counter target spell for paying three life. Um, I have snuff Future. out in here, which yeah. destroys target non black well. creatures. Um, just for the. I mean, it's typically an instant for three and a black, but you can just pay four mm-hmm. life instead of paying the mana cost to destroy a target non black creature with no regeneration. Yep, uh, I have that in there as well. Uh, Garza's Assassin is another interesting one. It's a 2 2 for three black, black, black. Uh, for, for black, 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 sorry. Eastern Sackham to destroy a target non black creature, and then whenever another creature dies, you can pay half your life rounded up to return it from the grave to hand. Ooh, that's So sneaky. it's a repeatable... Yeah, yeah, he's an assassin. He's, he's got to do that. His name is Garza's assassin. And and you really don't care about the extra life loss because you're trying to do that anyway. So the faster you can get your life total down, the easier it is to be able to get to your ultimate strategy. So in that case, a card that otherwise, like for my deck, would be objectively terrible in a lot of situations since I'm trying to keep a higher life total is absolutely acceptable, if not... Op, rather optimal in your build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to be paying life because I want to be low enough to be able to take somebody out in one shot, or the whole table if I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Killing Wave is another one that's good in my build, but not necessarily in yours, because my build isn't looking to keep a board state, necessarily. Uh, so Killing Wave, X Black, Sorcery, for each creature as controller sacrifices it unless uh, that <clears throat> that person pay, pays X life. Uh. First off, I am perfectly willing to pay X life. Second, I don't think anybody else is, and if their board state is wide enough, they're either sacrificing their entire board state, or they are taking a massive amount of damage. So even though I want opponent life totals high to be able to swap them, I don't want everybody's life total high. Mm-hmm. And preferably, I'd rather not have to use the combo finish if I don't have to. I can just beat in with Selenia if that's the case. Yeah. And, 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 and I mean, it's good to have that backup win condition available to you. So again, Death Cloud can... I mean, I love my token decks. Death Cloud is a literal Death Cloud to my token strategies. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, killing wave. That's a oh, sorry, sorry, killing wave. But death cloud is also a very ugh, ugh yeah. card. But yes, killing wave uh, does the same thing and just makes me. I mean, I, I, hopefully it's not one of those Actually, cards I that makes you. Games of granite's worse. Yeah, that that's, that's true. That's the converted mana cost. I think. Yeah. 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 There, there's a lot of things that unfortunately hose token strategies. It makes me sad. But um, yeah, it's. It's just interesting how, yeah, it, it just coming back to the same thing about how we're able to build two completely different Selenia decks, yet we have the same commander here. And mm. I, I I think that's something that kind of goes unsaid a bit in the, in the larger Magic the Gathering community is, yeah, sure, there's a lot of people out there who have a defined style, strategy, maybe even a signature card that they like playing a lot. 
but the ability to be able to come up with a deck kind of on the fly, come up with a different strategy, I think that's something that combines a lot of learned behavior with a lot of the preferences, and that's that's really what keeps me coming. Again, I, I keep saying this like a broken record, but it's what keeps me coming back to this game. It's why I really enjoy building new decks to do some silly thing. Some of mine are more straightforward than others, but I just like putting these cards together and trying to solve this weird puzzle that I can while still trying to, to fit along the lines of uh, of what my deck is trying to do. I I'm 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 not, I'm not trying to sit here and say that the cards I throw in my decks actively don't help my win strategy. It's just that they sometimes go about it a little differently than what the standard or what I should say the regular meta would be considering. I mean, uh, for my Selenia deck again, I'm running Congregate. You know, an instant target player gains two life for each creature in play. Well, again, in my meta specifically, and again, I build a lot of my decks for my meta first out because they're who I play with the most and who I really play test with a lot. Uh, we play a lot of creatures. So all of a sudden, Congregate could easily for four mana give me 30, 40 life in a lot of cases, especially if I'm playing a lot of creatures. So four mana instant speed, I could gain 30, 40 life. That is definitely something that in a life gain deck, uh, it's extremely important when I can especially then start paying the life with Selenia, get Villas going, um, even running Bolas's Citadel to start being able to play cards off the top of my library. Just things like that that I can do to try to be able to gain the value to then do what my deck wants to do, maybe not in the best way, but certainly in a way that seems to work with the rest of the deck. Awesome. All right. So, uh, J-Roll, I want to thank you again for being on the episode. It's been great, as always, just be able to talk about the, our different deck-building styles and really just be able to explain how we look at the same commander and we see two completely different strategies. I mean, that that really, I think, is the is the complete essence of EDH in a nutshell. Absolutely. All right. So uh, again, where can people find you on the internet? All right. So you can find me at uh, <clears throat> twitch.tv backslash on summon skull. That's where I stream on Mondays through Thursdays, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, same school time, same school channel. Uh, I also have a Twitter at coach underscore J underscore R-O. And I have a Discord at the skull symbol. All right, and you can find me, MJ, on Twitter at at MTG in quarantine. Same username as the name of the podcast, in case you forget. And if you find the Ulamog with the headphones and the rock-on symbol, you've found the right place. You can also find the back catalog of these podcasts on Spotify, Google, Apple, and many other podcast outlets. So again, Jero, thanks for being on the episode today. And again, my name's MJ. You've been listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. Have a great rest of your day.